Hey, what's going on, everyone? We are so glad you're choosing to take time out of your day to listen to our sermons. Our prayer for you is that these messages would not replace your belonging to a local church, but would only be supplemental in your walk with Jesus. With that being said, we love you, and we hope you enjoy the message today. All right, well, now that I've taken up half my preaching time on the offering... See, people tell me I talk fast all the time. After, after church, people are like, Seth, you talk so fast. And I'm like, yeah, you're welcome for getting you out on time for lunch. So um, that's, I guess I'll just have to preach faster today. Uh, bear with me. We'll figure it out. Uh, so if you're new here, uh, the past couple of weeks, we have just recently started this series that we're calling Blessed Quest. Uh, and that tagline underneath is Finding True Happiness. And so I, I think that most of us can agree that, that we spend the majority of our time pursuing happiness, right? Uh, the, the things that we do, the things that we're actively doing in our lives are generally to pursue happiness. I mean, think about it in this regard. When we grow up, what do we do? We go out, we get a job so that we can have money, so that we can buy things, so that we can get married, so that we can buy a house, so that we can have kids, so that we can have a dog, and we do all these things that, you know... It, I look at everybody else in the world, and this must be what happiness is. All the things that we're investing all of our time, all of our money, all of our attention to, we're pursuing happiness. Uh, and, and I think in that, we can admit that there is a desperate need for happiness. There's a desperate lack of it in our society today. People pursuing happiness that, that just aren't finding it. And so, you know, well, in, in Jesus, in his very first sermon ever, the very first sermon Jesus ever preaches, he starts out with this series of phrases where he says, blessed are the something. Blessed are the poor in spirit, right? Blessed uh, are, are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. He goes through all these things that blessed are these people. And so what we broke down in our very first week is we said, we've got to understand what this word blessed means because we don't use this word very often. Um, and when we do, I don't think we really know what we're talking about, but, but we won't get into that. Uh, but this word blessed, when we break down the etymology of it, just means happiness. Uh, but it's not, it's not the same kind of happiness that we talk about. It's, it's not the kind of happiness of, of like getting a promotion at work or buying a new car or, or any of those kinds of things. It's not a fleeting happiness. It's something that is a deep-seated joy in our souls. The psalmist in the very first psalm and I think this is really telling because there are a lot of psalms with a lot of crying, a lot of things going wrong, a lot of anger. But the very first psalm sets the precedent of the blessed man looks like a tree that has been planted by a river. Its roots run deep. It's, it's steadfast. When, when drought comes, the tree is all right. When, when the weather changes, the tree is all right. When chaos happens, the tree is all right. That's what the, the blessed person or the happy person is like. That's true happiness. That when you lose your job, when your family falls apart, when you don't know where you're going next in your life, you still have a joy that doesn't seem to really make any sense. Well, the rest of the world around you is questioning what is going on in your life. I don't know. I'm just satisfied. I'm just satisfied in Jesus. You, we have this deep-seated joy in us. And so, you know, I, I, I look at, at all of this, and here's the key to understanding this. You know, as a parent, I want my daughter to be happy, but my goal is not for her to be happy. 
I wouldn't be a great parent if my goal was for her to be happy. Because trust me, even in the, the one and a half years that we've spent together, uh, I don't always make my daughter happy. If my goal was to make her happy, I say no far too often. If my goal was to make her happy, I tell her to stop mocking me far too often. This is something my one-year-old's really good at. It's really weird. I don't know where she picked it up. But, you know, if, if that was my goal, I wouldn't be doing a very good job with her. And so, so what this is, is my vision for her future is that she would understand true happiness. And so to, to kind of break down what this looks like a little bit. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's reality that my daughter will probably grow up and get married and have kids and, and have a family like most other people do, right? And so what I don't want, what I don't want is for my daughter to grow up and get married thinking that this man will complete me. This man will make me happy. Marriage is what I've been looking for all along. This will satisfy. Because here's the deal. My daughter is broken. And her future husband is broken. And when you put two broken people together, you know what you get? A mess. A broken mess. Yeah. And, that, and that's, and, but we go to that looking for happiness. And so what I would rather happen, so, so we look in Genesis, all the way back in Genesis 2.18, says, then the Lord God, he, he saw that the man was alone, and he said, this is no good. It's no good for the man to be alone. I'll make him a helper. So marriage is a good thing. Marriage should bring some sort of happiness. It's a good thing. But, but here's the key. This is what I want you to understand. Marriage is not the end. Jesus is the end. So what I would rather happen for my daughter is I would want her to get married to a man where they can both recognize we are broken people, but what can we do to make each other both look a little bit more like Jesus? Because that's the end. What can we do? What, what can I do? What can I pour out of me to draw you closer to Jesus? Because that's the end. That's where that real happiness is going to come from. Marriage is, is for us, which means it's not the end. If we worship the creation instead of the creator, we're going to be left empty-handed 10 times out of 10. But when we go to the creator, well, then we find something a little bit different. So Jesus begins setting this up for us in this very first sermon. He starts explaining to us, okay, you guys are spending all of this time pursuing happiness, pursuing pleasure. I made you. Let me tell you what's going to make you happy. I know the things that make you tick. I know the things about your mind. I know what you go to sleep thinking about every night. I know your hopes and dreams. Let me tell you what will bring you true, genuine happiness. And then he starts out this, this really uh, sort of ironic sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. And then... This week, he, he goes on from there, and so we'll, we'll jump right into our verse in Matthew chapter 5, and, and we'll run through these again. Uh, Matthew 5, starting in verse 2 all the way through verse 5, and it says, And Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And then this week, we have blessed are the meek, or happy are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So Jesus has been laying some groundwork leading up to this, uh, talking, he's, he's been driving this point of irony almost. Everything that you thought would make you happy is a lie. Everything that you've been pursuing is like sand running through your fingers. And eventually it's going to run out. The beach is great, 
but eventually the sand is going to run through your fingers and you're going to be left empty-handed. And, and so what is meek, right? I don't know about y'all, but uh, I use a lot of words. This is not one of them. I can't think of one time in my life that I used the word meek in a complete sentence unless I was reading Matthew 5.5. 5. That's, that's really just about it. Uh, it's, it's not a word that we use anymore. It's, it's not something, when you call somebody meek, they probably, they, honestly, they probably don't know what you're talking about and they're probably just going to be offended because it doesn't sound that great to be meek, right? I mean, regardless of what you're talking about, it doesn't sound awesome. So, so I started thinking to myself, if I were going to, to call somebody meek today, but, but in a way that they would understand, how would, I, how would I break this down to them? What kind of word would I use today? Uh, and I, I sort of ran around with the, with the word disciplined. Uh, it's close, but I don't feel like that quite fit. But we've, we've got a phrase that we use uh, in American society that I think most of us would understand. We call these, person, these people gentle giants, right? This is a gentle giant is the kind of person who, who you would never, ever want to get in a fight with. But you know you would never, ever have to worry about getting in a fight with this guy right? That's, that's not in his character. That's not in his nature. This is the kind of guy that, that when he's got a fly that flies in his house, he doesn't have any fly swatters. He says, oh, no, 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 I'll just catch it. I'll take it outside and we'll, we'll let it go. Not understanding that flies were designed to be killed, right? And so, so this is a gentle giant. This is, this is that person that, I mean, most of us, have you ever known a gentle giant? Okay, a couple of you have. This is somebody that you usually want on your side knowing that you're never, you're never going to be able to push them over the ledge, but just in case somebody else might push them over the ledge, you want to be on that person's team, right? This is the guy that, that I don't want to mess with uh, when, when things start to go down. And so the idea then is being meek is to have all the power in the world, but knowing how and when to use it. To be able to be gentle even in your strength, to be able to be tender, even in your might. That's, that's the concept behind this idea, meek. And so uh, there's, there's a certain guy in the Old Testament who actually does a really, really good job of portraying this to us. Uh, there's, there's one guy in particular in the Old Testament who I can think of that if there was any way to show meekness, this guy had it handled. And so we know the story of David and Goliath, Right? We, we've, most of us, I, th- I think, have heard this story. If not, David was this, he was this little shepherd boy. And so what had, what had ended up happening is his brothers had gone out to war. And David comes to check on his brothers at the war. And uh, he's, when he gets there, he hears this guy mocking the God of Israel. And he sees no one confronting him. He sees no one challenging him. He sees no one going up and saying, hey, no, 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 no. You don't talk about my God that way. And, and David is a little bit annoyed at what he's seeing from the Israeli army at this point. And so David decides, you know what? I'll be the one to challenge Goliath. And so, so here's what he says. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, starting in verse 32, we get the story of David and Goliath. And it says, And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart because of him. Your servant David will go and fight with this Philistine, Goliath. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. 
But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his sheep for his father. And, and check this out. Okay, this is where the story gets really cool. So David used to be a shepherd for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, remember, we're talking about lions and bears, guys, okay? Like, this is wild. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard. I didn't even know bears had beards. And struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. What did I just read? Like, okay, okay. Let's talk about this for a second. Because, like, I grew up in church, guys. I've, I, I was saved when I was six years old. I did all the Sunday school stuff. I've colored the pictures of David. And listen, I colored pictures of this little boy with these scrawny little arms that, that almost made mine look good, and that's hard to do. And he wore this little mini skirt for some reason, right? And he's got a harp, and it's like, this is what it means to be a man after God's own heart, kids. Like, you just wear mini skirts and play harps. It's super cool. And I read this, and I'm like, what are you reading? Where did you get this picture of David? This is the kid that, like, the first story that we get of him is that he's a shepherd. He's hanging out with the sheep. Dad doesn't like him. He goes to the, to the armies, and he's like, listen, I can kill this, this giant. I killed bears and lions. No big deal. Like, I mean, they'd get mad at me, and I would just grab them by their mouth, and I'd kill them. And, you know, what any normal person would do with a bear or a lion, Right? Like, okay, listen, I used to love camping growing up. Then I got a tent, and I don't like it anymore. You know why? Bears and mountain lions. Do you guys realize how terrifying those things are? Like, I don't care when people are like, no, bears are super safe, you're fine, just don't agitate them, whatever. I don't, what if I agitate it on accident? What if the person in the campground next to me agitates it, and all of a sudden I'm the guy who runs slower? Like, no, thank you. And what is my tent going to do to protect me from this? My tent can't protect me from me. It can't even keep me warm. Like, no, thank you. And mountain lions, like those things just freak me out. You don't even know when they're coming. Like they just come out of nowhere. And so I'm like, no, I don't do the whole camping thing. And I've thought to myself for a little bit, because I've got a couple of dogs and they're dumb enough that they would challenge a lion or a bear if they were faced with them, uh, especially the chihuahua. That's just, there's something about them. And so my thought my thought when I'm camping is, okay, maybe I'll get lucky. My dogs will challenge them, and I can run fast enough that when he's eating my dog, I'll make it out alive, right? <laughs> like, I'm sorry. I got to get out of there. I'm, I'm not doing this whole bear thing. But then you've got David, who the bear or the lion does take a sheep, and what? No, no, no. You're not taking my sheep. You can go take the neighbor's sheep, but not my sheep. And he goes around and grabs the bear by the chin at the bottom of his jaw, pulls him around, opens his mouth, pulls the sheep out, and tells him to go away. And when he does it, he challenges the bear and fights him and kills him. Like, okay, this is not a kid in a miniskirt with a harp, okay? Like, we get that now, right? This kid is, listen, men, we got something to learn from David, okay? Harps and miniskirts ain't where it at, but... I don't know about y'all, I've never killed a bear or a lion, particularly with my bare hands. I don't even want to go up against one with a gun, because what if I miss, right? But this kid, hand-on-hand -hand combat, takes him on, no big deal. It's just, that's David. That's what he does. 
But hold on, it gets better. So then moving on in our text, in verse 38 of 1 Samuel chapter 17, it says, David has gone to Saul, and he's told him now, right? I'm going to challenge Goliath. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I can't go with these, for I haven't tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Like, okay, okay, you want to talk about uh, the man after God's own heart, right? So he starts out, he's like, no big deal, Saul. I kill lions and bears. It's whatever. I can take on the giant. And, and keep in mind, like, if he loses all of Israel's slaves to the Philistines, and Saul begrudgingly trusts him, and then he's like, you know what, this, this whole armor thing, not, no, not working for me. And I, I can just picture, like, Saul calls in his armor bearer, right? This is, this is the best of the armor that there is. This is the best sword in the land of Israel. This is the best you can, this isn't what the rest of the Israelites in the army are wearing. This is what the king wears. And he puts it on David, and he's like, no, doesn't fit. I'll just go without. It's cool. I'm fine. <laughs> like, this kid is a man's man, even from his youth. Like, I, I, I want to go back a little bit, and I want you guys to get the whole picture of what's going on here, okay? So David is a shepherd. That's a, starting out, all we know about David is he's a shepherd. He's out there taking care of sheep, and, and his dad's like, hey, bring some food to your brothers in the war. Because this is the same kid that when Samuel came, he's like, hey, I'm looking for the next king. David's dad, Jesse, was like, oh, yeah, let me get all my sons except for the one that doesn't matter. He's out tending the sheep, right? It's got to be one of these guys because these are men. And Samuel goes through all of them and, nope, 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 nope. So what we know about David is that his dad's not really that impressed with him, right? And so his dad says, hey, take some food to your brothers and the war. So, so David shows up to the Israeli army with some milk and cookies because that's what Israelites are all about. And he, he goes in and he's like, hey, how's the war guys going, guys? Uh, by the way, who's that guy who's, who's out there yelling and mocking our God? Somebody should do something about that. And at this point, the entire army erupts in laughter. Like, yeah, who's going to take on this giant? And David's like, really? You, you're the arm? Okay, okay, I'll take him. I'll handle the giant. And they erupt into laughter again because this is just a little kid. And when they realize he's serious, okay, I'll take you to Saul. We'll take you to Saul. Saul suits him up in armor, and David says, nope, it's not going to work. And I, can, I, can, I can't even picture Saul's face as David takes the helmet off. He's like, here, I don't want it. Takes off the breastplate. This isn't going to work. Not even that. He leaves the sword. Like, he says the armor didn't fit, but he still leaves the sword he goes out, he grabs a stick and some rocks. He's like, all right, guys, catch you later. I'll let you know when I'm done with the giant. What is going on with this kid? But we know how the story ends, right? What does David do? He goes out, he doesn't even use the staff. He goes out with the first stone, throws it in his sling, slings it at the giant, he falls down, and then David... Again, they don't teach us this part in Sunday school, 
But this kid, this is a man's man, guys. He knocks the giant down, goes and takes Goliath's sword. This is a 10-foot dude. I don't know what size his sword is, but I ain't picking it up. David grabs the sword, chops off Goliath's head, and comes back and is like, was that really so hard, guys? You couldn't have done that yourselves? But this, this is meekness. Understand that this is meekness. Because David, what was his day job? He hung out with sheep. He took care of them. He nurtured him. Like, this isn't in my notes, but I get to thinking about this being Mother's Day, and I'm like, yeah, okay, I can see this with mom. Like, we got some, mother, some, some mama bears out here, right? Like, I remember my mom, like, I mean, this is like the perfect woman. And one time, I, I promise you, one time I have seen her mad in my entire life. I have never been so terrified for everyone's life. I didn't even know if I was safe. And I wasn't the one making her mad, oddly enough. Like, this is, but, but even my mom in this showed me meekness, that she's the one who would nurture me, who would take care of me. She's the one that, that when life is falling apart and her little two-year-old is screaming, it's not dad that goes in there to calm him down, to hush him, to rock him back to sleep. That's mom, right? right. That's mom doing that. And there was, there's a genuine level of meekness. But, but then we look at David. And man, I can see this in my mom too, and I see this in my wife, which is so cool. Because what happens with David is there's a switch that can be flipped, right? And what was the switch for David? When someone defies the living God. Listen, listen, this is the same thing for mama bears. When someone takes issue with those whom you love, you take issue back. Am I right? And for David, when someone takes issue with the one who is the most important relationship in his entire life, you better believe he got offended. You better believe he had a problem. He didn't say anything about the giant defying the armies of, of Israel. He didn't say anything about the way the giant mocked his people. He said, really, this guy defies the living God? Oh, I've got a problem with that. I've got a problem with that. And listen, God doesn't need your defense. But there's something special about that kind of relationship, isn't there? There's something special there. You know, we live in a culture now where everyone is offended by everything. But what if, what if the right people were offended by the right things? Do you get what I'm saying? What if we as the church were offended by people in blatant opposition to our God. Not, not, I'm not just talking about people broken in their sin. I'm not just talking about people who, who have no idea what they're doing. I'm talking about the people who are in blatant opposition to our God and to the progress of his kingdom. Listen, Jesus is going to come wipe out all the rebels one of these days. I sure want to be on his side when he's wiping out the rebels. That's all I'm saying. And, and so we, we kind of look at the breakdown of this, of that switch being flipped. And Ephesians 4 gives us a little bit of a picture of this. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, really simple. Be angry and don't sin. It's pretty clear, right? It's not a lot to it. But, but this raises a lot of questions. Well, what does it mean to be angry and, and not sin? What does it mean to be angry and to sin? Right? 
And so what Paul is doing is he's breaking down that, I mean, listen, we can't paint anger with a, with a black and white brush saying that anger is always sinful. Because if we did that, we would, ha- we would have a real big problem when we turn to the verse where Jesus starts flipping tables over in the temple, right? Let's not even get started on the Old Testament, okay? We, we would start to have problems if we painted anger with a blatant brush saying anger is always sinful. No, what Paul is saying is, listen, God gets angry. Get angry like God. Get angry at God gets angry at. You know what should make us angry? Injustice. What should make us angry is when we see people who are made in the image of God being treated less than. That, that's why I take so seriously when we have these baby bottles out there. We have an opportunity to reach out to those who are made in the image of God and to be Jesus to those people. I mean, again, we're, we're always angry at, at something, right? I mean, listen, I don't care what side of the political aisle you're on. You're angry at the other side for something. Republicans are mad at Democrats. Democrats are mad at Republicans. You know why? Because regardless how you slice it, we're angry about how somebody else would treat other human beings. That's what it comes down to. We're angry about how people would treat other people who are made in the image of God. So, so what should we do about this? It's an easy solution, really. Be the church. Paul says the church is the hands and feet of Jesus. This is our opportunity to take all the strength in the world and to serve with it, to nurture with it, just like Mama Bear would. But we have, we have another side of, of uh, meekness, right? So, so let me give you the backstory here. Uh, does anybody remember what happened after David and Goliath? This part's not talked about quite as much. But So what happens, David kills Goliath. David and Saul go strolling back into town. And all the ladies in the town come out, and they're singing and dancing. And they start listening to the song, and they're singing, David has killed his 10,000. Saul has killed his thousands. And David's like... Well, this is cool. Saul, not so much. Saul, a switch had flipped. And that point in history determined the entire trajectory of the relationship between David and Saul. It was from that moment that we, see, we start to see Saul blatantly pursuing David in attempts to kill him. This is the kid who's supposed to be the next king, who, who really, Saul should be pouring into David saying, what can I do that when I leave this throne, I can make sure my legacy continues? And instead, he's trying to murder him. And so what happens is is David is running all over the place for his life, uh, hiding from Saul in all sorts of places, and he ends up, we we get to a point where David and Saul actually bump into each other, right? So 1 Samuel chapter 24, remember, we were just in 17, so this isn't that much later. 1 Samuel 24 says, Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel, He's only chasing after one guy. But anyway, 3,000 men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfold by the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. This is how you know the Bible is real because normal people wouldn't include this stuff. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost part of this same cave. And the men of David said to David, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. 
So the idea is, David, this is, this is your chance. You can kill him. You can be king. God already promised that you're going to be the king. We all know you're really good at killing, right? I mean, listen, read the, read the whole story of David. This dude was a warrior. There was, there was a unique gifting in the life of David to serve in the military. And boy, did he run with it. And boy, was he good at it. So don't forget, as David approaches Saul in this cave, don't forget what he's good at. Don't forget the things that David can do. I mean, listen, if he's killed Goliath, if he's killed the bears, if he's killed the lions, I'm not sure what Saul's going to do to fight back. I mean, if I'm just being honest, I don't know. But, you know, we look at this, and, and here's the problem. We have a tendency to have a skewed vision of justice. And what I mean by this is, what do we like more than justice? We like revenge, right? I mean, let's, don't go lying to me now because you're in church. We like revenge. So there, there was a pastor who talked about, he went and saw one of the James Bond movies in theaters, and towards the end of the movie uh, and the climax of the moment, Bond and the villain are up on an elevated structure fighting to the death at this point. And if anyone is to fall off of this structure, it, it's going to mean certain death. And in the theater, they're watching this movie, and the villain slips, and he begins to fall, and he clings on to the side of the structure. And you know if he slips, it's the end. And in that moment, he lost his grip, and he fell. And the entire theater rose to their feet in applause. And again, don't act like you're better than this just because you're in church. Because we love a good revenge story. When we, when we see in the movie, when they build up all of the evil that this guy has done, all of a sudden we're like, yeah, no, I can get on board with this. Because listen, you know what would have made this a bad movie? If Bond would have held them up, thrown some cuffs on them, taken them to jail, and they would have been like, yeah, you're going to get like six months in jail. You'll probably get out early. No big deal. Whatever. Wouldn't have been a good movie, right? Because we want revenge. David's friends are pushing David for revenge. But we don't see quite exactly that from David. This is what it says moving on in verse 4 of 1 Samuel 24. Then David arose. So he's headed there with a knife. David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him. Because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe, he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. This is the other side of meekness. Remember what we're talking about. Remember who we're talking about. Remember what David is capable of. Remember that the throne has been promised to him. Remember that Saul is trying to kill him. And David, in this moment, says, God picked this guy to be king. Who am I to do this? All of this power. And he backs off. And instead, he later in the story, he confronts Saul with his sin from a safe vantage point. And says, look at what you're doing. I, I could have taken your life, but I didn't. Because I'm pursuing the living God. Because I have a relationship with the living God. And that dictates the way I live my life. This is meekness. And so we go back to our passage in Matthew chapter 5, back in verse 5. 
And we have the second half of this, right? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We live in a world where everybody is taking everything that they can by force. You steal, you cheat, you lie, you do what you can to get what you want. You, you do what you can to get that next step, to, take, to, to get that next promotion, to put yourself uh, one foot forward of the competition, right? And if, and if I can just do a little bit more, I can force my way into success. But Jesus, Jesus runs his kingdom the entire opposite of this. Jesus is constantly coming through, and we see it even through this. Even through this sermon, these few verses, that Jesus' kingdom reveals that our kingdom is actually flipped entirely on its head. That we're pursuing things entirely backwards. Because the meek, the ones who have all the power, but choose to say, no, 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 no. I'm going to nurture instead. They're going to inherit the earth. Because Jesus, this is the example of Jesus, to be on that cross being crucified and knowing full well that at any moment I could call down a legion of angels and wipe this planet out. But what does he say instead? Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. Forgive them. That's the meekness, right? And man, if, if I could be that, if I could be that to my family, to my church, to the people around me. Because listen, if, if you have a relationship with Jesus, you have the full power. Paul says in the book of Romans, the same power that pulled Jesus' dead body out of the grave is living inside of you. You literally have resurrection power living inside of you. This is a big deal. When, when we're reaching out to this community, when we're going to say that, you know what, we want to see our church grow, we want to see people uh, reached with the gospel of Jesus, we want to see lives transformed, you understand we're dealing with dead people in their sins, and we're offering them life. And Paul says you have that power living in you. The same power that could have called down the legions of angels. The same power that said, Father, forgive them, for they have no idea what they're doing. They don't know forgive them. That's meekness. And when Jesus comes and establishes his kingdom in full, guess who's going to be a part of that with him? This is, this is a result of a relationship with Jesus. If you truly have a relationship with Jesus, you'll, you'll start to see this take over your life in ways that, that will be things, you know, when, when you start to lie, cheat, and steal to get what you want, you're going to feel something you're going to feel something saying, this isn't right. I shouldn't be doing this. And, and you're, going to, you're going to look at homeless people on corners asking for money, suffering. And, and you're going to look away because you can't look them in the eye because when you do, you feel something. Because you know you have the power to act. Because you know that you have something that, can, that screams against injustice. And so what I would ask of us, church, because I'm included in this, is to exercise this power in the face of injustice and to exercise nurture everywhere else. Because that's what it means to be the hands and feet of Jesus. That's what it means to pursue a relationship with Jesus. And I promise you this, you'll feel like you're giving something up. But Jesus, okay, let's be real. If somebody says that they're going to die, but they're going to come back, so it's fine, and they do it, 
everything he says I'm going to believe. That's, that's the groundwork there. And so if a man who predicted his, his own death and resurrection and actually did it says, you will be happy if you exercise this meekness. I don't know about you, but I trust him. It doesn't make sense. I, I don't have the one plus one equals two. It's not adding up, but I trust him. So we actively pursue justice. We do what James 1.27 says. Pure and undefiled religion is to take care of the widows and the orphans. That's what we do. We eradicate the world of injustice and we nurture with all of our might. Jesus, we thank you for today. We thank you for this time together in your word. And we just ask that, ask that this could stir in our hearts, uh, that it could draw us closer to you. That we would see the true, proper meekness is pursuit of you. That, that you gave us the ultimate example of meekness on the cross. And that you will show the other side of it in your return, Jesus. And we ask that, that as we move forward in our individual lives, that, that you would continue to transform us and to work in us, to stir our hearts, to stir our souls in a way that we would become more like you that we would love you more, that we would be more passionate about you. And we ask this too, Jesus, that if there's anybody here that doesn't currently have a relationship with you, that hasn't experienced the wonder and the love of your meekness, that you would radically pursue their heart today, Jesus. Because we know that you love them. And we ask that we could be your hands and feet and that we could have a part in this. That we could have a part in pursuing justice and in nurturing everywhere else. We love you. We thank you, and we lift up your name to have all of the praise. And it's in Jesus' name, amen.